Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News, Toronto, Canada. Professor Morris of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m. a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millett and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Clink. And I am Troy Harkin. And this is our Buckaroo Bonsai episode. We're recording it on Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022, and it is scheduled for broadcast on Saturday, March 5th. We have a special guest for this episode. Ira Naiman is returning. He was our guest for Season 1, Episode 5, that looked at the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, broadcast on May 29th, 2021. Before that, Troy will give us a spoiler alert. Hold on, I'm pushing the button right now. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Thanks, Troy. We're recording this session via Zoom. In the interest of transparency, Troy and myself, have known Ira for many years. Let's introduce our special guest. Ira Naiman is a writer who keeps getting speculative fiction in his humor. His eighth novel, The Ugly Truth, will be published by Elswin Press in 2022. His 21st short story, Girls Rule the Steampunk World, will be published in the next Brave New Girls anthology in July 2022. Le Page au Fall, Ira's website of social and political satire, will celebrate 20 years of weekly updates in September 2022. He was the editor of Amazing Stories magazine for three years. Before he was a prose geek, Ira was a script geek. He took three years of screenwriting for his undergrad degree at York University and wrote for Creative Screenwriting Magazine. Welcome, Ira. Hey, Ira. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great to have you back. Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with the speculative genre, to recall these times with fondness and affection. I think Austin Chunick from... Under the Radar, in a review published on February 28, 2017, may have said it best when he said, just how much one will be able to jibe with Buckaroo Banzai will hinge on whether or not you're willing to buy into the movie's unabashed lunacy. When Ira was a guest, we did ask him what his all-time faves were, 
but we added more categories through the year. So we'll review his answers and then ask him the ones that were not asked before. If he wishes to provide a bit of a more of a story on some of his answers, he is invited to do so. So um, Ira had picked, and this was kind of interesting, Troy, that early in the season, in our first about eight episodes, about half of our guests had picked this film as their favorite science fiction film of all time. 2001 A Space Odyssey is Ira's favorite genre. And then when we talk about genre, we're talking about science fiction, fantasy, and horror. His genre TV show, The Prisoner, his favorite genre TV episode was one called Dance of the Dead from The Prisoner. A genre novel, he had two. He had Against the Day from Thomas Pynchon. And he thought that if that didn't really count as genre, then Slaughterhouse Five. Not a watermelon Kirk. in any of those, I don't, I don't believe. Um, maybe Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah. Mm. We need more watermelons in our speculative uh, fiction. A genre shorter work. Um, it's interesting how uh, Ira answered this. And if you want to add anything, uh, Ira, because when we were looking for genre shorter work, we were looking for like an actual specific short story, like like Flowers for Algernon or The Cold Equations or something like that. And what Ira, what you picked were two of your favorite authors who write a lot of great shorter work. Keith Lommer, you would pick from the Retief a series in Spider Robinson from the Callahan's Bar series. I don't know if you wanted to add anything specifically or just anything from those series are, are worth a look. Well, I think, you know, my background as a comedy writer, as a humor writer, really, um, really informs a lot of uh, my answers to your questions. Um, uh, Keith Lommer's Rateef stories are just um, great kind of satires of diplomatic politics, uh, diplomacy. Um, and uh, I am a sucker for a good pun. So Spider Robinson's uh, short stories are all about, uh, about wordplay and things like that. Um, so that's what really draws me to, uh, to these two writers. Absolutely. Now, genre author, you you picked um, uh, several, uh, Thomas uh, Pinchon, uh, Douglas Adams, who um, is fantastic, of course, and we did have you as our guest on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and uh, Kurt Vonnegut. Now, your theme or concept, genre, science fiction, fantasy, horror, theme or concept, you had picked alternate worlds specifically, and I liked how you phrased this, how choice and chance makes us the people that we are. So I thought that was quite brilliant. Well, uh, genre. Have, go ahead. Okay. Uh, well, I have a theory, um, and I don't recall if I, I mentioned it last time, so I'll just throw it out here again. I have a theory that every uh, genre of fiction has its own kind of built-in thematics that are there whether a writer actually um, actively engages with them or not. Um, I realized this years ago when I was working on uh, an original uh, TV series about vampires, it occurred to me that vampire stories are always about how the short span of human lives um, really affects how we behave. And it does this by showing us how creatures with lives longer than ours are different from us. Their behavior changes because they have more time to do things. Um, I've been writing a lot in uh, a lot of stories in the multiverse, and very quickly I realized that 
when you're dealing with multiple universes where people uh, can either be born into different universes, different places, or make different choices within the choices that are available to them in the universes that they are, these are the factors that make the people who they are. Um, and so to me, uh, this is um, a fascinating way, you know, exploring the multiverse is a fascinating way of exploring what really makes us human, what gets down to what mm. really makes us the people we are. Um, thanks for that explanation. Um, I just found it fascinating. I love alternate worlds as well. And these multiverses, um, we had also asked about like theater production or musical, and you actually were able to combine both with your answer with the Rocky horror picture show, which was theater production and a musical. And you also did something similar when we had asked for graphic novel or comic book series, because you had picked Sandband and Watchmen, which you had mentioned uh, to me, to us uh, just before we started recording that both Sandman and Watchmen were both comic book series and also graphic novels uh genre poem you'd pick jabberwocky or the walrus and the carpenter because you're a fan of lewis carroll and who isn't and what we have and troy will get into these is that we had added a whole set of additional categories that we call a la carte so troy if you want to introduce these ones yeah i hear some of our sort of sidebar uh questions do you have a favorite genre podcast other than ours <laughs> well, i'm glad you qualified that because yeah. this could have gotten very ugly very quickly yeah. <laughs> um, i i could recommend um i think it's called lavar burton reads um and it is exactly what uh what the title uh suggests uh each podcast he reads it uh mostly science fiction um sometimes fantasy or horror um, and he's got a great voice and he's amazing to listen to. And, uh, and he picks some really interesting stories. So that would be my choice. Excellent. How about a genre audiobook? I'm not a big We're fan. Skipping that one. Okay. So, okay. yeah. Uh, okay. Sorry, I couldn't help you with that one. Yeah. Do you have a favorite genre documentary or mockumentary? Uh, that's, that's a tough one. I, I think. You know there are a lot of there are a lot of really good uh, uh, Star Trek uh, documentaries. Uh, I think of uh, what is it, the Five Captains, or mm -hmm. the one about all the different captains um, that um, really give a little insight uh, into uh, into the series. So uh, that that would uh, uh, that would qualify for me, I think. All right. How about a favorite genre, nonfiction book or essay? A book that I've read recently that I really uh, really admired was um, Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny, but I realized it's not genre, <laughs> um, but it's an important book for for these times. Um, in terms of genre, there are there are things like um, uh, the book review uh, the book review sections in in fantasy and science fiction magazine uh, SNS. F and SF or F SF and F a bunch of letters with an ampersand. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about. You can boggle it. You can just give it a shake and <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, they're really helpful in, um, in uh, telling you what's current 
and giving you some idea of uh, uh, of what's worth reading. While I'm thinking of it, I, I want to give a shout out to uh, a, a recent uh, nonfiction uh, book that I came across, which was entitled uh, All of the Marvels, where uh, the author whose name escapes me right now, he basically gives you the history of Marvel Comics from the first Fantastic Four comic up until 2017. And he just in- encapsulates the storylines of every important uh, Marvel book there is and the history of every character. Uh, it was, it was a fascinating read. And it, I love that he uh, actually mentioned the flaming carrot because that's the origin of the flaming carrot that he read 500 comics in one sitting and thus became this mentally ill superhero named the flaming carrot. Anyway, let's enough about me and what I read uh, in genre filk. Do you have any uh, favorite uh, folk renderings of sci-fi? I have a uh, uh, a fondness for uh, Kari Morin, and it's not actually because I, I have a story. Um, there was a convention, and we were supposed to both be doing readings, uh, but Kari was given my reading slot in addition to her own reading slot. So I show up, and she's like there, and we're not sure what to do. So um, what we ended up doing was uh, I agreed to be her for my slot. Um, so I was reading from my own fiction, but uh, as her. Um, and she said that it was it was great, except when I introduced myself, I got my name wrong. <laughs> there you go. And our last of the uh, a la carte is best genre fish in your estimation. Uh, for me, it's it's Doctor Zoidberg from Futurama. Excellent. He's just a lot of fun. Uh, thanks a lot, Ira. So on to the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. Uh, Troy Harkin will give some background, set it in context before we get into a full discussion on it. Take it away, Troy. The 1984 film The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension was directed by W.D. Richter and written by Earl Mack Rauch. If you've never seen the film, then think The Big Lebowski meets Back to the Future or Indiana Jones meets Late Night with David Letterman or 2001 meets Ferris Bueller's Day Off or Purple Rain meets Terminator meets Anchorman. Imagine all of those films met one another. In fact... I'm not certain that Ron Burgundy, Ferris Bueller, Prince, Indiana Jones, and Marty McFly aren't all Blue Blazer regulars. And I can't be sure that Principal Ed Rooney, HAL 9000, and Biff Tannen aren't all Lectroids from Planet 10 trying to cause the downfall of mankind. What I can tell you with some degree of certainty is that W.D. Richter worked as a successful screenwriter for over a decade before forming a production company and directing Buckaroo Banzai. In 1974, Richter came across a novel written by Earl Mack Rauch. He liked the writer's sensibilities and invited Rauch out to Hollywood. He was intrigued by a character that Rauch was writing called Buckaroo Bandy. Rauch was constantly writing and discarding drafts about this character. Various titles included Find the Jet Car, Said the President, The Strange Case of Mr. Cigars, and Lepers from Saturn. The deuce, you say. In 1980, MGM United Artists inked a development deal for Buckaroo Bonsai. 
Studio exec David Beagleman left MGM, but ended up optioning the script and signing it to Sherwood Productions. He, in turn, made a deal with 20th Century Fox. Buckaroo Banzai was to be made for $12 million. Beagleman believed this could be his Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, a film that was budgeted at $20 million. W.D. Richter had originally wanted Tom Hanks to play Buckaroo. His second choice for the role was Michael Keaton. Eventually, he settled on Peter Weller, a choice that the actual Buckaroo Banzai approved of. While the film is remembered fondly for its idiosyncratic elements, its casting is not one of them. For me, it's a perfectly cast film, in particular showcasing actors John Lithgow, Jeff Goldblum, Clancy Brown, and Christopher Lloyd. And of course, the whole conceit falls apart if we do not believe in Peter Weller as Buckaroo Bonsai. And Buckaroo's love interest and perpetual damsel in distress, Penny Pretty, is played by the smoldering Ellen Barkin. Although the film seemed to have a perfect collection of acting ensemble and creative production team, the film was constantly at loggerheads with David Beagleman, who was insistent on receiving his Indiana Jones while only wanting to finance Cleopatra Jones. There are many cases of Beagleman's interference throughout the production, but perhaps one of the worst examples was his firing of cinematographer Jordan Cronenweth, who had just come off of winning multiple awards as Blade Runner's director of photography. Beagleman felt Cronenworth's work was too moody and not, and not bright enough for his film. The film created by Richter and Rauch explains the world of Bonsai in the opening text scroll. Buckaroo Bonsai, born to an American mother and a Japanese father, thus began life as he was destined to live it, going in several directions at once. A brilliant neurosurgeon, this restless young man grew quickly dissatisfied with a life devoted solely to medicine. He roamed the planet studying martial arts and particle physics, collecting around him a most eccentric group of friends, those hard-rocking scientists, the Hong Kong Cavaliers. And now, with his astounding jet car ready for a bold assault on the dimension barrier, Buckaroo Banzai faces the greatest challenge of his turbulent life. While high above Earth, an alien spacecraft keeps a nervous watch on Team Banzai's every move. Tubi offers a more concise synopsis. It reads, a rock star slash brain surgeon slash comic book hero slash samurai must stop creatures from the eighth dimension who want to conquer our dimension. Originally, the film opened with a flashback sequence showing the death of Buckaroo's parents. This scene featured Jamie Lee Curtis as Buckaroo's mother. The actual bonsai found the scene too disturbing and requested that the filmmakers remove it, which they did. Buckaroo Banzai opened on August 10th, 1984, opposite stiff genre competition from films such as Star Trek III, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and Ghostbusters. The film earned $620,000 on its opening weekend before grossing $6.3 million in North America. It was the 106th highest grossing film of 1984. To give it some perspective, in 1984, it did outgrow some other classics and cult classics, including Streets of Fire, This is Spinal Tap, Never Say Never Again, The Brother from Another Planet, and Repo Man. Yet nearly 40 years later, the legacy of Buckaroo Banzai continues to grow. And that's all there is to say about that.
Thanks a lot, Troy. Um, Ira, I was wondering if you have any story behind or, or if you remember the first time you were introduced to the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. Well, to be honest with you, it was probably, <clears throat> excuse me, it was probably um, on television. I doubt very much I saw it in the theater, um, which I now regret because um, for the time, I think the effects were probably pretty good, actually, and probably would have benefited from uh, seeing on the bigger screen. Uh, that having been said, though, of course, it's it's the um, it's the humor and the just the the sheer weirdness of it that uh, that really drives the film. Um, and I have to admit, because I've I've long been uh, a fan of humor and weirdness, uh, I loved it from the first screening. Laugh while you can, monkey boy. And Troy, did you want? Do you have a story yourself about? Well, actually, I was drawn to it because uh, it's a film that I missed on its initial run. But uh, my best friend somehow, I don't know why, because we were usually joined at the hip, um, but he had seen it and I hadn't. And from that point on, he sort of raved about it, saying it was one of his favorite films and how much I would love it. Um, and he kept comparing it to things like comics that we loved, like Flame and Carrot by Bob Burden and Lloyd Llewellyn and these sort of, uh, you know, crazy alternative comics that we both love. And he said it sort of shared that sensibility. And I can see that now. Um, and it really, for whatever reason, I, I never sought it out, even though I could have uh, easily rented it at some point. But uh, it wasn't really until I came across it but not in its entirety on, on something like AMC. I was like, yeah, yeah. And then in preparation for this show, it was really the first time I saw it without any commercials and in, in, in its entirety um, and sort of did fall in love with it. And I've watched it far too many times in the past month. I think my wife really does think I'm going insane now. But it's a good kind of insane, I think. Um, <laughs> right. I keep calling her monkey boy and she doesn't know why. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, 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 I had the same thing. It was one that I missed, I believe, in the theater. And then it came on, you know, TV. And for me, watching it again after 30 years in prep for this panel, I, I was for this uh, podcast episode, it was kind of neat to remember some of the things because I had had some of the memories like him going through a mountain. Um, and the spiders, Jeff Goldblum as basically a cowboy, that wonderful theme music that really isn't even played until the end credits, except you know, Jeff Goldblum does play a bit on the piano and it had bits of it are running through the film. Um, the, po the moment that which I was so looking forward to early on when this guy does everything. He's a scientist. He's doing, he's going through a mountain and then, and then he's got a band and he's playing music and the, and the din and how loud it is. And they're playing. And suddenly he just stops everyone and says, you know what? There's someone in the audience that is going through a rough time. And that whole scene, it just so stunning and so brilliant. 
Um, so for me, that was one of my memories that I was so glad to see again of the film. One of the things that struck me in, in rewatching it recently was that it wasn't as consistently funny as I had remembered it. Like I remembered a lot of the humor, but in between a lot of the humor, there are a lot of action sequences or, um, you know, character development scenes. Um, and yet even, even the action and the character development are still weird enough that as an overall movie, it, it works really well for me. Yeah. I think those, those sort of constant tone shifts are one of the things that gives it, gives it its quirky appeal, uh, because it sort of does keep you off balance, um, and there's that's also, the- if I can jump in for a uh-huh. second, the, 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 because of your screenwriting experience, Ira, and I know, Troy, you've done some uh, s- some screenwriting yourself, just how snappy the dialogue is, how short the scenes are, the brilliant lines. It's almost like this one has as many great lines you can remember and repeat as Predator. You know, it's just got that snap and you just wonder what the heck is going on here it's just some really good moments that you can just hear in the background in some cases yeah and a lot sorry go ahead go ahead uh, troy uh, actually flagged one um they're in a a warehouse that has been taken over by the aliens uh yo-yo dine industries and and there's action going on because it's it's heading towards the climax of the and as the action sort of unfolds there's this uh, corporate guy speaking in the background over a microphone, very calmly going, yes, there are monkey boys in the building. These must be dealt with, you know, just these sort of way out there kind of details that, um, uh, again, it's one of those things, and I love this, it's one of those movies that uh, you can watch several times and still be getting new things out of. Yeah, there was something like I had shared uh, a link and, and maybe some people, all you have to do is just Google Siskel and Ebert Buckaroo Banzai. And there's a YouTube video of them reviewing Buckaroo Banzai. They're also doing Dreamscape and Sheena and a few other films. So about the 16, about the 12 minute, 45 second mark up until about the 16 minute and 15 second mark, both Siskel and Ebert are reviewing the film. And Siskel, you know, when we used to watch that show, we would generally tend towards one or the other, both give a thumbs up. It's a great, it's a good film. In some cases, one of them might be a, a thumbs up and one's a thumbs down. And generally, I always tended towards Ebert. Like he would be the one that if he was a thumbs up and Cisco was a thumbs down, I would like the film. But if it was Cisco was a thumbs up and Ebert was a thumbs down, I may not like it as much. But what was interesting was Ebert gave it a thumbs down and Cisco gave it a thumbs up. And with Ebert, he was talking about how the plot and just how it went. It was just so it just he just couldn't make head or tails of it. But he thought it was such a good film that it was a reluctant thumbs down. Cisco thought it was something that would become a cult classic. Um, 
And it was kind of interesting because the one clip they showed in this at the movies thing, it's also interesting. If you watch the entire episode, you just see how much sometimes they start really ripping into each other. And in some cases, they, they, and it's not just put for show just to say, make an interesting episode. They're actually, in some cases, not really liking each other. Um, but um, the clip they show is early in the film where they're actually trying to make sense of the plot. And they're talking about the Orson Welles. And I love it how one of the characters says, oh, the guy from the 1970s commercials <laughs> about wine. You know, what, no wine before it's time. Remember Orson Welles doing those? We're old farts. So we remember that. And Orson Welles, who was a very big man by then. Um, was sitting there looking fantastic. Like he had this look almost like Sebastian Cabot, this just genteel, brilliant, good looking man talking about wine. And he says, Oh, from those commercials, no, the 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast, which is, I think, us and many people think that's a fantastic piece, that War of the Worlds. But trying to make sense of that as being, no, actually, it wasn't just a fake one, it was real. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that yeah, it's, it's just amazing that they flagged that as a future cult hit, because I think sometimes we we are left with films that are just atrociously bad that become cult flicks. But I think the thing about Buckaroo Banzai that um, makes it a candidate for it or did at the time uh, was... Yeah, I mean, quirky is a little bit overused, but there's just so much detail in there that allows the film to stand up to multiple viewings. And even in the past week or so where I've watched it a bunch of times, every viewing, like every subsequent viewing, I enjoy the film more because I see how things pay off, which at first I thought none of it was going to pay off. But they do. All these little elements do pay off. Yeah. And one of the things when we were discussing this before we uh, started taping, one of the things that I would point out is that the whole uh, the yo-yo dine industries is set in Grover's Mill, which is actually an early um, reference to uh, War of the Worlds, because that's where Orson Welles' invasion starts. Um, and as I've, I've pointed out, the whole alien invasion, actually happened but was covered up by Orson Welles uh, in anybody else's hands would be an entire movie on its own but here it's kind of thrown away in a couple of sentences and then they move on to other things right and that's the the sort of level of um, detail that they're working with that they're constantly yes. throwing out new ideas right yeah, and then I mean, we we I know we're going to get into more of the the dialogue, but you mentioned the the being at uh, Yo-Yo Dine, and I love when uh, um, Warfen is trying to sort of rally his troops and and work them up, and he has the uh, you know what do we want to go to Planet Ten? When do we want it? Pretty soon. <laughs> Like that just slayed me. I think I would have if had I been in the theater and heard that the first time, I would have done a spit take for sure. <laughs> Popcorn um, over everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Buckaroo, you have forgot your thruster. Why don't you hold on to it for a while? Anytime. Ira, you, you had mentioned when we were doing prep for the show about there is a book, uh, the Buckaroo, the versus just set the comics aside for a minute. But you had mentioned something like almost like a 600-page book. Can you talk a bit about that? I can show you it is um oh, that's beautiful written by well 
it claims the authors are the Reno Kid, who is a character in the in the in the movie, uh, and E.M. Rauch, who of course was the screenwriter. Uh, it is called Buckaroo Bonsai Against the World Crime League, which uh, you may have mentioned um, at the end of the film. We are promised the sequel, Buckaroo Bonsai Against the World Crime League, uh, which for many reasons uh, never happened, and we can go into that. But um, so this is supposed to be the story that we were promised like 40 years ago. Um, it isn't, oddly enough. Um, Hanoi Jan, the bad guy of the Buckaroo universe, um, is front and center. Uh, but in fact, um, it's John Morphin who uh, is the main villain of the book. And John Morphin is the, um, is the person who uh, Banzai and the Hong Kong Cavaliers are actually fighting the most against in the book, not the World Crime League. Mm. Um, which kind of surprised me, but um, he can go, he can let his imagination go wherever he wants. Uh, it's a book with very literary pretensions. There's a lot of in-depth background. The first, to give you a sense of sort of how it plays out, the first hundred pages are almost entirely the history of Hanoi Shan. And have, uh, there's only one scene of about five or ten pages with uh, Buckaroo Bonsai in it, um, which is an odd place to start the book. Um, it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really get to the level of um, inventive craziness as the movie until about uh, 150 pages towards the end. Um, the final uh, sort of battle in front of Vatican, in front of the Vatican in Rome, well, in Vatican City, I guess. Um, which takes up like the last almost 200 pages of the book um, really starts, it, it really starts to pop, but it's a slog to get to that point. Um, now I should also mention for people and, you know, you've already alerted for spoilers, right? Because mm -hmm. at the end of the movie, John Warfman is shot out of the sky. You think, well, he's dead, but actually in both the movie and the comic books, um, Warfin is completely resurrected. He's he's brought back, um, and this sets up essentially the same problem as in the movie, right? Because uh, Princess uh, John Emdahl, the leader of uh, Planet Ten, um, threatens to kill Earth if uh, John Warfin is uh, destroyed. Um, so when you bring him back that whole thing comes back again and Earth uh -huh. becomes uh, threatened once again. It happens in uh, one of the comic books and it also happens in the novel. So speaking of resurrections, um, do we get a return of Rawhide? Sadly, no. no oh, no. Okay, I can't <laughs> go on. Uh, do we get, uh, is John Parker back? Uh, John Parker is back, yes. Nice. Okay. Well, that that makes me feel a little bit better. One thing I will say in having watched the film after having read the book and, and some of the comics, um, one of the things that really, really uh, was impressed upon me was just how thin the characters in the original movie are. They're types. We get to learn absolutely nothing about just about any of 
right? And part of the reason why I think, because I've been thinking about this a lot, part of the reason why many of them work as well as they do is because of the um, charismatic personality of the actors. Mm -hmm. So for instance, we don't really get to know all that much about New Jersey, but John um, uh, Jeff Goldblum is just so awesome and, and fun to watch in the part that we don't have to realize, you know, we don't necessarily think, oh, that's a really thin character. Um, uh, another person who is actually explored a lot in the, the novel, who is just kind of thrown out there is uh, Mrs. Johnson who is kind of the chef fixer person who's always there to, uh, uh, to make things right, um, who's kind of in the background of a few scenes in the movie, but who really takes on a life of her own. And we see this again with Reno, because partially because this is sto uh, the story is told from Reno's point of view. Uh, Reno doesn't have a lot to do in the film, but he really comes to the fore in the book. Um, so those sorts of things, and and the comic books as well. Uh, some of the comic books follow from the end of the movie, but some of them actually go back uh, in time. And we see, for instance, uh, the death of um, Buckaroo's parents in one of the comics, um, which helps us fill in his backstory. Uh, we also see a lot of uh, the other characters. So we see a lot more of um, Perfect Tommy. Uh, another good example. Uh, so it it is definitely worthwhile for people who love the film. It's definitely worthwhile to seek out some of the other forms that uh, the story has taken. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, that it's easy for a viewer to get confused on their first viewing is there are so many characters there are so many Hong Kong Cavaliers and, and there's not a lot of things that, uh, you know, separate one from another um other than costume right I, yeah. yeah and 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 you know it's like thank god we have new jersey in the uh the nudie suit that he wears because otherwise it, we would just get it would just be another one of the guys you know um in fact i just realized if, if they weren't careful they could have ended up all looking like the village people uh one of the things with the snappy dialogue and things that you want to be able to do is to write humor in there and make it snappy. And one of these scenes where mission control says, Buckaroo, the white house wants to know is everything okay with the alien spacecraft from planet 10, or should we just go ahead and destroy Russia? Now, Buckaroo Banzai says, tell him yes on one and no on two. Now mission control says, which one was yes, go ahead and destroy Russia or number two. And this kind of thing is just great. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, that's in the context. They're actually moving through um, the bus, the tour bus, I guess it is, um, to a scene about something completely different. So this is just kind of thrown out there. So one of the characters is um, Secretary of Defense, I think. He's there from... from the beginning actually he's there in the first scene where where buckaroo goes mm. through the mountain and he's like many of the characters in the film he wants uh what is known as the oscillation overthruster, which is the part of the jet car that allows it to go through uh through solid matter it's kind of a macguffin for a lot of the, the evil characters and he ends up uh, 
okay, I should actually, before I, I set that up, uh, before I say that, I should set up the fact that um, that Buckaroo Bonsai not only has comic books in the film, he also has a young fan base who read the comic books and um, they are known as, and I'm blanking, uh, Troy, help me out here. What are the... Um, uh, are we talking about the Blue Blazer regulars? The Blue Blazer regulars, thank yeah. you. Um, and one one father and son Blue Blazer regular are in the film mm. and the kid ends up with the oscillation overthruster, which the Secretary of Defense wants. And this eight-year-old black kid ends up holding a rifle on the Secretary of Defense to keep him from getting the oscillation overthruster. And it's like, that is just hella weird. That's just yeah. really strange. Yeah, is that Scooter? Is that the kid's name? I'm trying to uh, remember. You might be right, yeah. 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 yeah, you know, it's funny. Again, what really fascinates me with the film is how it's like this uh, weird mix of different styles and and it somehow it all works you know <laughs> um like it's certain elements remind me of something like blue velvet or some lynchian sort of weirdness but then it has like low elements as if it's like a scene from airplane you know it's it's and it just blends all together and becomes its own sort of universe and then we have all these of course sort of zen uh moments like uh buckaroo's famous line which i'm sure we'll get to soon but even his uh bandana that he puts on you know before getting in the jet car which supposedly the inscription means beauty in everyday life um you know which is a wonderful thought and it sounds very much like what we would like to think buckaroo you know would have as sort of a life motto yeah i've been invaded by a cat and it's, <laughs> oh, it's in my lap i'm trying to do that and its tail is hitting me in the face so. it almost went up your nose there it looked like wow okay it's come on primrose are you sure I it's not a flurkin <laughs> a flurkin from the uh avengers universe oh my god get that thing away from- how'd they get in here the cat <laughs> this isn't what you're afraid of is it that's not a cat that's a flurkin a flurkin <laughs> I'm not sure, but it, it's, it's certainly the cats have got to, you know, take it easy for God's sake. Yeah, just because um, it looks like a cat doesn't mean it's a cat. One of the things, Troy, that you mentioned was that there was some, like in the DVD, or there was some additional something, and there was some like making of mm-hmm. where the director and the writer were talking about the film as if the character was actually real. Oh, yeah. In the original uh, making of, um, which was with um, Richter and Rauch, they only ever uh, sort of, they were working with this pretense that that Buckaroo Bonsai, the film, is a docudrama based on the life of the actual Buckaroo. And they referenced things like I, I mentioned in my history, how uh, they had shot that uh death scene at the beginning of the film of his parents, but uh, Buckaroo found it too upsetting. So it was removed. And I believe, I guess you were saying too, with the novel um, that that's from, was it Pecos? Was that Pecos uh, viewpoint or whose, whose viewpoint was Reno. it from? Reno's viewpoint. Reno, sorry. Yeah. See, even though we never see Pecos in this film, I, I'm confusing the two of them. <laughs> well, there are, and he introduces several additional Hong Kong Cavaliers in the novel, but uh, they do have a little bit of space to uh, develop. 
So it's a lot easier to uh, keep them separate uh, from the novel than it is uh, in the film. Ira, do you have any uh, backgrounds um, on some of the uh, some of the interference that Bagelman put up for his production for his uh, you know the, the people well, making actually, his film? Yeah, in the back of one of the comic books, there's a, kind of a history of uh, the character uh, Buckaroo Bonsai. Um, as a uh, as an entertainment product, and one of the things that uh, that I didn't know until I reread this, or I'd forgotten until I reread this, was that um, in the late '90s, early 2000s, there was supposed to be a TV series. Um, Rauch and Richter had been working on scripts, uh, a pilot script for the TV series, and uh, networks were interested. But Bagelman, who had such a horrible, horrible experience with the shooting of the film, had the rights to the to oh, no. and would not allow them to uh, to make a TV series. That's uh, crazy. A few years later, uh, well, Bagelman, Bagelman was not an astute businessman by any stretch of the imagination, obviously. Um, and he lost control of Buckaroo Bonsai, so they tried it again. Um, and they almost had it, I think, at NBC. I think yeah. NBC was about to produce it um, when the uh, the president of the network passed, or whoever the the the, the last guy who had to say yes. Oh no! And, and Kevin Smith was attached to both of those uh, attempts, wasn't he? The uh, 20, 2016 and the earlier one. I think you might be right. I think yeah, you might be right. Yeah. Do you want to tell the story, the, the famous story about the watermelon scene? <laughs> Um, you seem to get such pleasure out of it. I wouldn't deny you that. Well, I just don't want to sort of embellish or misspeak, but uh, it's funny. People are, are always sort of asking about that. There's, so there's the scene, I guess it must be pretty deep into act three. I guess they're, it's at Yo-Yo Dine, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I think and, so, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's Jeff, not Jeff, well, Jeff Goldblum, but New Jersey and Reno. Is Reno with, with him, I believe? I think so. And basically, this this little, like, sort of maybe 30 seconds scene, maybe less, just breaks up uh, two scenes with Buckaroo. So it basically just creates a little a bit of time uh, for him to get from one place to another. And so you follow uh, New Jersey and Reno <laughs> through this small room and you see sort of on a, what is it, a press or something? A watermelon between this device that looks like a, an elaborate press. And uh, New Jersey says, uh, is it, why is that watermelon there? Yeah, I believe that's how he words it. Why is that watermelon there? And... <laughs> And uh, it was Reno's response, I'll tell you later. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so people say, what the hell is that scene about? And, so, you know, according to Richter, it was they were getting so much interference from uh, Beagleman that uh, they wanted to see if he was still inspecting the dailies for stupid things like what color sunglasses uh, uh, Buckaroo was wearing um, and every other little, you know, minute detail. Um, so they, they shot this one little scene where they go through and, and they reference the watermelon and it was purely to see if, uh, Beagleman was watching the uh, dailies. And when they got no notes about it, they realized, oh, he's not watching anymore. He's kind of like flown the coop. All right. We're, we're free to 
carry on without his interference for a little bit. So, and I also wonder, there's a scene earlier in the film where is it um, uh, grapefruit that, that surround an office and they don't really um, refer to it, but um, I guess it's back at the uh, Bonsai Institute um, and, and like desktops are covered with grapefruit and, but they don't ever refer to it. You know, it's just left for the audience to go, why the hell are there grapefruit? And I'm wondering if it's the same reason that there were watermelon. Maybe it was a subliminal comment on, on getting more fiber in your diet. It could be. Or maybe they were all huge fans of Yoko Ono's uh, poetry collection, Grapefruit. And, and they just wanted that little reference there. There's my little beetleism for the, the show, David. Oh, actually, I do have one other beetleism. Um, you mentioned the theme at the end and I, and I love the story and I love the music that uh, Michael Boddicker uh, composed for the, uh, that, that end segment um, as they're walking along. Is it the LA, like one of the aqueducts or reservoirs or something? Um, so originally that was Uptown Girl by Billy Joel that, that uh, the Hong Kong Cavaliers are walking to. They didn't have the music composed yet. But the composer knew sort of the tempo that he wanted, and it was the same tempo as Uptown Girl. So you can imagine that as, as they're all walking along and falling in. Um, but there's a piece of music from Paul McCartney's 1980 uh, McCartney 2 album, which is him basically just with um, home computers creating music. And there's a piece called Frozen Jap, which I'll play you a little bit of here. That sort of, uh, when I first heard the the uh, Buckaroo theme, um, it, it reminded me of that. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's uh, being lifted or anything. It's, it's just the brain, the way the brain works, um, and and uh, let our listeners decide what they think. But uh, a nice little piece of music, anyway. Where do we want to go, Dave? Um. I thought that we're almost at a point where we want to go into our dreamcasting and screencasting, but there is a lot of like, like what's interesting about the film also is the, is the heart in it uh, early on at that scene that I had referenced about how um, Buckaroo had stopped everything. Somehow he could actually hear one person in the room that, was crying and somehow stopped everything and then right. and then talked to her and he and then people start getting on her case and he says to the audience hey hey don't be mean we don't have to be mean no matter where you go there you are then he goes over to the piano and starts singing a song directly to her and then you get this whole sense about her and then you see the photo and then there's this thread that runs through it of is she somehow connected like the multiverse to this woman that he once knew. Um, there's so much like that in the film that it, I think it holds it together a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And even offering up perfect Tommy's jacket for her in the, in the cell. Yeah. Yeah. And perfect Tommy said, well, why should I do that? I said, well, you're perfect. 
And, it, you know, and then he says, yeah, yeah, I guess, you you know, he can't argue with that. Um, I have to find the actual, um, uh, well, I think I have the phrase here. Yes. Um, now let her out and give her your coat. <laughs> perfect Tommy says, why me? And Buckaroo Banzi says, because you're perfect. And then Perfect Tommy said, you have a point there. You know, he's, <laughs> he, he couldn't even argue that because he Buckaroo has already won by calling him perfect. Yeah, it's it's amazing because it, it does remind me in many ways, even though it came out much like 15 years before The Big Lebowski, there's a lot of things in it that that um, appeal to me in the same way that Lebowski appeals to me. First of all, there's the quirkiness and there's the detail, but there's also like all of these sort of Zen messages throughout it. And, and at its heart, it's, 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 it's a story of peace, you know, and finding peace. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to, to John Lithgow, who, to me, it's like, I, I really can't imagine this film without him. And I find like, he really pulls it together. And when you just consider like, just, I just have a partial list of, of, of Lithgow films that are, some of them, I sort of look for more genre, but um, there's blowout. Uh, Garp, he was nominated for just prior to um, Buckaroo Banzai, Twilight Zone, Shrek, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. He was amazing in Bombshell. Um, uh, I've got. Uh, he was the only good thing about the 2019 Pet Cemetery remake. Don't don't you trust me on that? It's not worth checking out otherwise. <laughs> um, and of course, Third Rock, The Queen. The fact that he could, you know, do what he did in Third Rock and do what he did in the queen as Churchill just shows the, uh, the range that he has. Um, also he was in amazing stories, tales from the crypt and Dexter. Um, and he's just such a great warfan. Um, and he says in, in the, uh, one of the making ofs that it was the most fun he ever made making a film that those actors just loved working together. And I guess, you know, it really was an ensemble in that in many of those scenes, they were all, you know, often together. John Lithgow. Um, oh my God. Uh, Christopher Lloyd, mm-hmm. and Dan Hedaya. Yeah. Okay. All together in scenes. It's like a comedy dream come true. Yeah. 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 Oh, and then watching this, the making of bits with the two of them and how, Lithgow talked about uh, how you actually see him on camera breaking character when uh, when John Big Booty Boute, uh flips him the bird behind his back. He said like Lloyd was just cracking him up, and so like what happens in that that shot is yeah the camera's in front of John Lithgow. Uh, Christopher Lloyd's behind him flipping the bird, and and Lithgow just knowing what he's doing. Moves this helmet in front of him, but you can see it in his eyes. He's cracking up, and uh, supposedly Lithgow, or not Lithgow, but Lloyd, also uh, lost it in the shot where uh, he he's ordered by um, Warfin to uh, do something with some switches, <laughs> and uh, and Warfin goes over and he just smacks uh, a big boute. <laughs> And and he said he was so taken aback by the fact that he he didn't know that he was going to get hit, but and 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 uh, Lithgow hadn't planned to do it. He just did it. He was in character, 
And he said he just cracked up for minutes after being hit. He just thought it was the funniest thing. Dream casting. Yeah. Dream casting, baby. So we're going to do our dream casting. And if it's okay, David, I'm going to go first. And uh, what we'll do is the three of us will give our responses for each role. Uh, we're first tackling the idea of casting the leads and the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension with the best possible actors and actresses who have ever lived. This is our dream cast. In part two, we will do our Schrodinger's cast, which is our, I'll say it again because it's sort of the theme of the show, our quirky, unusual, outside-of-the-box casting. Sounds great. And Troy, if you want to just go over the original roles, we're just looking at four, the, the, the four listed as, I guess, the most screen time, and we'll look at those. So if you want to mention the characters in the original star. Sure. Peter Weller played... Uh, Buckaroo Banzai, as we've just mentioned, John Lithgow was Lord John Worfen. Originally, he is Dr. Emilio Lazardo before being taken over by Worfen. Uh, Ellen Barkin is Penny Pretty. And Jeff Goldblum plays uh, Dr. Sidney Zweibel, a.k.a. New Jersey. Sounds good. And Troy, if you want to start, I've thought that what we may want to do is to do our our Dreamcast and Schrodinger's cast just for one character at a time. The three of us can do Buckaroo and then we can do Lord Warfin and so on. So, um, Troy, what do you got for um, Buckaroo? I had a difficult time with this. and <laughs> I will tell you, I actually, I think I had a visitor from Porlock today because I forgot one of them. But um, so I'm left with the two I came up with yesterday. Originally, I was thinking Luke Kirby, who plays uh, Lenny Bruce on The Marvelous uh, Mrs. Maisel. Um, but then it just occurred to me that it should be Elvis. It should be Elvis Presley circa 68, 69, around the time of the, the comeback special when he's looking good. Also around the time that he was in um, Change of Habit with Mary Tyler Moore. And he plays a doctor in that film. So that's my, I'm going to go with Elvis. And your Schrodinger's uh, um, one, and then we will both do okay um so okay so my theme for my schrodinger's cast was the silent film version so for this i'm going with harold lloyd as buckaroo bonsai i like those choices um for me i went with errol flynn circa when you know when he was errol flynn Mm -hmm. uh, which I guess is all his life, but I'm thinking of the adventures of Robin Hood back in 38. And there were a number of other films that he was basically the swashbuckling hero. And I thought he would be perfect. And then for the Shortinger's cast for all of mine, I am picking um, um, Asian actors. And I went with uh, Jackie Chan as Buckaroo Banzai. Very nice. I actually did think about um, Bruce Lee, but uh, I did not go that route. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah, I was actually thinking when I heard about the TV series, so who would be good to cast as Buckaroo Bonsai if we were to make a TV series now? 
And um, I thought it kind of is important to have an Asian actor play uh, the character. Um, so I would go with John Cho. On the other hand, for the Schrodinger's thing, the first thought that came to me, and it's <laughs> not a good one, but I'm going to put it there anyway. Um, I like the cut of your jib, sir. <laughs> uh, Groucho Marx. Yeah. That's how you play this game. Interesting. Uh, M-A-R-X, yeah. That is how you play the game. Full marks. <laughs> All right, so I, it's back to me then, right, David? Yeah. All righty, so uh, Lord John Worfin, for my dream cast, I went with Will Ferrell. And for my Schrodinger's cast in my silent film version, I went with Chaplin. Um not just because he was not the only silent person I can think of, but I just know that Chaplin obviously played Hitler. He could, he can do a mean villain. I was thinking along your lines of Will Ferrell, who can basically do anything that Zoolander, when he was in Zoolander, that this is the kind of crazed, odd and interesting will ferrell that can just perfectly do that role so i think troy i i, I think you got a good one there yeah thanks very much um what do you got? My, my ones i went with for a, a for a, the lizardo character warfin character as danny k who can really get into some lunacy, mm-hmm. can do the comedy, can do the stuff. One of my favorite films, probably my in my top 10 favorite comedies of all time, even though it's not, not speculative or science fiction or fantasy kind of thing, is The Court Jester. And of course, he wasn't Hans Christian Andersen and so on, but The Court Jester, that kind of a character is just so wild and so odd that he would just be perfect. I was almost thinking of, and I'm just thinking of it right now, of the film that had um, uh, Jack Lemmon in it and and Natalie Wood, where there's the great race. Oh, yeah. That, I'm trying to remember if it was the Jack Lemmon character, the, the one that plays the evil character um, in it, is that menacing and of course you also have the, the, the kind of the, like like caesar romero from the original batman series you you have these characters who are great actors but then they have a chance to really do crazy and fun stuff and you just see that they're enjoying the hell out of themselves for doing something that they would never have done otherwise in their lives and what i picked for my um asian cast for lord warfin is ken jeong who's one of my favorites and I was came up with this idea of kind of a humorous aside is that he might be pound for pound the funniest person on the planet. Well, I'll tell you why I teach Spanish. It is none of your business, okay? And I don't want to have any conversations about what a mysterious, inscrutable man I am. <laughs> In Espanol, my nickname is El Tigre Chino. Because ah, my knowledge will bite her face off. So don't question Senor Chen, or you'll get bit. You bit. You bit. Ira, what do you got? Um, uh, for my dream cast, I would go for uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. 
And partially it's because um, John Lithgow is actually a big, broad kind of guy. And he's, his take on Lizardo is very, or Worfen slash Lizardo is very physical. Um, and so I think Vincent D'Onofrio could easily capture that. And as you say, mostly a serious actor, but I think he could really have a lot of fun with the part. Yeah. Um, in terms of the cast, uh, in terms of Schrodinger's cast, um, I was thinking of a Chris, but I'm not sure if it should be like Chris Pine or uh, one of the other Hollywood Chrises. There are about <laughs> 27 of them at this point. Uh, anyway, yeah, they're like the Johns. They're like the Johns from outer space. There you right? go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But we should get them to play the Lectroids. <laughs> That's right. Is it possible all these Chris, Chris Hemsworth, Chris yeah. Pine, you know, the, all of these Chris's that are out there now, Chris Pratt, Chris, Chris Pratt. Evans, yep. and all these Chris's were, I wonder if they were actually all born in Grover's Mills because there's a possibility. <laughs> no, I'm, okay. have birth certificates from our uh, personal ID from Grover's Mill, but we're not sure where exactly they were born. Right. I know, you know, after watching the film too many times recently, I I was thinking, hold on, Warfin is played by a John. It's like, what's what's happening here? Does this mean Lithgow is an electroid? But I don't know. And those names, like John Smallberries, and if you look at all of the John names, some of them are quite funny. But uh, so what do you got for the next um, grouping, um, Troy? For Penny... Um, you know, clearly the idea, uh, came to me from the name, but I went with, uh, Kaylee Cuoco at the height of her powers on Big Bang Theory. Um, and especially when she had the shorter blonde hair, I thought she would be a great penny. Um, Sounds good. Yeah. Yep. Um, in terms of, I almost had a flashback to our, our previous episode, Ira was our, um, genre crushes where we got into all kinds of sort of salacious areas. I won't go there with, uh, with Kaylee Cuoco right now. Move on. (laughs) So, um, although, uh, for my silent film version is one of my all time crushes, Hollywood crushes, and that's Louise Brooks. Um, so, and she also, you know, often had that Bob, that famous Bob. So, you know, short haired Penny again, although she'd be a brunette, not a blonde. Um, Anybody else have a Louise Brooks uh, fascination or crush? I'm trying to remember Louise Brooks. Now. Okay. Can Pandora's you... box is the big one. Um, many others, but she's just wonderful in Pandora's box. Okay. I haven't seen that one yet, but I'll definitely, she's a more recent actress, I guess. Or... Well, no, she's the, she's like, it's 1923. Uh, the film's by Murnau, I believe. Yeah. This is a film from basically almost 199 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you have gone back in time. I have. Well, it's my silent film version. So very nice. All righty. Um, let's. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, and I was almost going to go, and I may have done this before, just take the cast from uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938, but I have cast Penny Pretty as Olivia de Havilland um, from that film because I'm just quite taken with her. And for Schrodinger's cast, and I think we've already talked about Mrs. Maisel, the cast members from Mrs. Maisel, and I think uh, Stephanie, and I should have checked on the pronunciation because I have a couple friends whose last name is H-S-U, and one pronounces it Shu, and the other uh, pronounces it Sue. 
So I'll assume for the moment it's Sue, Stephanie Sue, uh, who is sort of a love interest to one of the main characters in the third or fourth season. And I think that she would be great as uh, a Penny uh, Pretty. She's um, hilarious. She's really good mm-hmm. at Basil. Absolutely. Sure. And, and I appreciate that from you, Ira, because you have such an expertise on comedy and Mrs. Maisel is such a great series. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what do you have for your um, dream in, in Schrodinger? Uh, well, for my dream, I would go for uh, Margot Robbie. Because uh, I think Penny has to be a bit of a bombshell. And I think Margot Robbie can certainly uh, carry that off. Um, and as she proved in um, uh, Birds of Prey, uh, she, she can be very funny. She can, she can carry comedy. Um, in terms of Schrodinger's case, since I seem to be going retro a lot, uh, I would try maybe Lucille Ball. Ooh, very nice. That's a great call. I like Ooh. that. Can turn a look and also just is incredibly funny. Absolutely. Okay, I guess I'm up for uh, my uh, New Jersey um, for Dreamcasting. Uh, Adam Driver came to mind pretty quickly. Um, again, you know, he can clearly do both the serious roles and the comedic roles, and he's he's tall and lanky like uh, Jeff Goldblum. So, so I went with Adam Driver, and I just want to point out with sort of the idea with my my silent film version for Schrodinger's Cat. I th- I thought it would be really funny seeing the Buckaroo Bonsai dialogue on title cards, like laugh all you like monkey boy. And why is there a watermelon there just on a title card? Like, I think that would really slay. Um, anyway, so I'm wrapping up yeah, uh, with some piano music. Yeah. Right. Like it would just be so funny. Um, anyway, New Jersey, who better than Tom Mix, the first Western movie star, uh, his first film was 1910. And he even has the wardrobe. It's basically the same wardrobe that Tom Mix <laughs> wore that, uh, that, that Goldblum wore. So there you go. That's, that's, that's me. That's brilliant. You, ab- you absolutely hit it out of the park with Tom Mix. There. That's fantastic. Um, it's hard to even imagine anyone other than Jeff Goldblum playing the role, but Tom Mix could certainly do it. Um, I went with, too tall actor i just could not imagine and sometimes we cheat a bit and we just say you know what for the dream cast you actually picked the person that what actually did the role because you can't imagine anyone better so i have no issue with anyone picking jeff goldblum but i went with john corbett who's like six foot five uh, goldblum is about six four six three and three quarters or something i looked it up on imdb or one of these sites so the john douche corbett, you say yes i just needed john to get that in there <laughs> so I, I picked John Corbett and, and there are a number of Asian actors that, that are starring and are, are major actors that are like 6'4 and 6'3. So I picked Jim Yu, who's 6'4, and Guawei Gong is, um, uh, and I may have butchered the pronunciation. I did actually have a pronunciation guide here, but it's on another, I'm not sure where I put it, but... Uh, who is six three? 
Um, but I, I definitely felt that you do need, just for that role, you do need someone wearing the cowboy stuff and someone that is tall and lanky, just like Jeff Goldblum. I just can't imagine someone who's of average height or shorter height being that character. Um, and let me just go over for Ira. And Ira, what do you got? Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to punk out here. Um, when they were talking about uh, making the TV series, one of the things that that was mentioned was it was almost 20 years after the release of the film. And a lot of the actors um, had aged and could not play the parts. They could not see, for instance, Peter Weller uh, being able to take on Buckaroo Bonsai at that age. Um, but that's not true with Jeff Goldblum. He looks exactly the same today <laughs> as he did when he made that film. So um, I have to say, Jeff Goldblum is my dream, uh, New Jersey. Um, for Schrodinger's cast, if you want to get to kind of the weird neurosis of the character, I was thinking maybe Woody Allen. I love it. I'd love to see him in the outfit at any age. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, I like your Woody. That's Well, hold on. I should rephrase that. I like your Woody Allen. <laughs> yeah. We're almost at the end of the episode. So um, I was wondering, Ira, if, is there anything that you may have picked up, say, in the last five or ten years about the movie that you didn't know before that may have surprised you or something that you learned about? Well, actually, the watermelon story uh, I had not known before. And um, on the one hand, it doesn't surprise me because producer-writer-director relationships are often antagonistic. Uh, on the other hand, just the the amount of vitriol that was there um, between those people, and yet they managed to create something so joyous out of uh, out of that, uh, uh, really did surprise me. And I'm just I'm thrilled that you know Rauch and Richter in particular were able to focus on making the film that they wanted to make. Ira, is there anything you are working on now that you would like to uh, let our listeners know about? Anything you want to promote or uh, sell on eBay for us? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, I've got stuff coming out later in the year. Uh, nothing uh, all that current. What I will say is that what I'm currently working on is... Um, so in, in the introduction, Dave mentioned that... Um, that my website is going to be uh, 20 years old this coming September. And um, to give you some idea of the scope of what that actually means, um, there are, it updates weekly, and that means that there will be at that point uh, a 1,040 weekly updates. So that's wow. new writing every week for 1,040 weeks. Wow. Uh, that uh, encompasses something on the order of 35 different collections of articles, um, roughly between two and a quarter and two and a half million words. Um, it's, it's quite a vast sort of uh, writing project. And one of the things I've been working on, and I'm actually, I've just finished uh, the introductions, there will be, um, starting in September, I will be releasing uh, 12 ebook collections of different uh, each ebook will focus on a different feature of the website um and i'll be giving them away for free just as kind of samplers for people um but uh most of them because they're mostly finished now i can tell you 
Um, most of them, the, the series is going to be called 12 from 20, 12 books from 20 years of writing. Um, and they all contain roughly between 50 and 60,000 words. So they're going to be free, but they're actually going to be substantive. And each one will have uh, an introduction on, you know, how the feature developed and, uh, uh, and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I hope, you know, readers will, uh, will be looking forward to it as well. Well, thank you so much. Um, I was trying to find some kind of a cool little ending quote from um, other than maybe will somebody turn off that gosh darn klaxon. But um, Ira, thank you for being our uh, guest and your expertise about you know the, the script and the and screenwriting and everything about buckaroo and the fact that you had to slog through that 600 page of uh, uh, book but thank you so much you're you're an awesome guest looking oh. for forward to our next uh show with you ira thank you me too it's it's always a pleasure talking to you guys yeah well that's our the adventures of buckaroo bonsai across the eighth dimension episode and remember, you can check us out on our socials. Um, look for us on your favorite podcast provider. Uh, like and subscribe wherever you find us. Um, try the website. We are 2numeric2of.ca. Uh, on Facebook, we're Two Old Farts Talk Sci Fi. And on Twitter, we are at Two Old Farts Talk Sci Fi with a numeric two. I am David Clint. And I am Troy Harkin. See you all for our next episode of Two Old Farts. Talk sci-fi. No matter where you go, 